Welcome to the discussion, National Security, Defense, and Educating Our Future Industry Leaders, sponsored by George Mason University. Here's today's moderator, Scott Massioni. Welcome and thanks for joining us. My guest today is John Cotton, Vice Admiral, U.S. Navy Retired. He's the Executive MBA Adjunct Faculty at the School of Business for George Mason University. Admiral, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for the invitation. Really enjoyed being here. Great. Well, I just wanted to start it off and uh, see if you could tell us a little bit about your past and, and what makes you such a great teacher over at GMU. Well, first of all, I enjoy teaching a lot. It's yeah. part of being a little bit older and giving back. And uh, I went to the United States Naval Academy, graduated in 1973, served in the Navy, transitioned, became a reservist, and uh, had a pretty successful reserve career that culminated as a chief of Navy Reserve. So I worked in the Pentagon from 2000 to uh, 2008 during uh, our operations and a lot of excitement that went on. I was also an airline pilot. I worked for Eastern Airlines and American Airlines. I was a captain with American. So I took leaves of absence to go uh, work on active duty for many years. Then I transitioned to the civilian sector, worked as a defense contractor with DRS Technologies, which is now Leonardo DRS. And then I used my wonderful 9-11 GI Bill benefits to get an executive MBA at GMU. Going through the program, I went to the dean and said, why do we do it this way? Why don't we do this? And at the end, he said, why don't you join our faculty and help us? So we transitioned the National Defense Program to the National Security Program, and that's where we are today, uh, talking about national security. So speaking of national security, there's a lot that's going on in the threat landscape. We have uh, Russia, China, North Korea, Iran is the the newest uh, thing resurfacing again. So do you mind just sort of laying out that landscape that your students are are going to be dealing with in the next 20 years or so? Sure. I put the students through an intense one-week residency program, and we do uh, um, lectures in the morning with uh, subject matter uh, experts. And then in the afternoon, we do field trips. And we try to look at the government side, the civilian side, and then the students who have that similar background, we discuss the issues, talking about the external threats, the internal issues that we have. And it's interesting, on the very first day, I ask the students on a blank sheet of paper, list the three biggest threats to our country. And then on Friday, I hand the piece of paper out with their names on it, and they all change their answers after talking to people who are in the arena inside the Beltway. Right. So that's kind of what we do. So what, what ends up on that piece of paper? Well, at the end it's of the interesting day? because when they come in, they usually parrot whatever they've read on their flavor of media or news, sure. or perhaps what they just listened to on WTOP when they were driving in. Who knows? Uh, but it starts with Russia or China or perhaps Iran or perhaps trade or something else. And then we uh, talk all week long and we figure out that it might be uh, Congress, the intransience, the impasse that's going on right now. It might be our uh, federal debt, could be our educational system and how many students are getting lost. And particularly for uh, military folks and government people, it's the increasing competition for talent. It's finding the people that'll come work here in Washington, D.C., work in these important jobs. Uh, That could be one of the biggest issues we face. And, and, you know, I wanted to go off of that a little bit because the National Defense Authorization Act for 2020 is coming up. It's already being worked on by the Senate and the House. And in the past, they have given some new uh, sort of authorities to Congress and, and, excuse me, to the Defense Department in order to help them hire talent. They have direct commissioning authorities. They have uh, areas where they can give pilots more money and bonuses. So how is that working out for them? And, and what more do they need to do to get out of that 20th century sort of uh, com- complex? Well, I'm glad you brought up 20th century because that's when I was serving. Sure. And uh, we assumed at that time that there was a never-ending supply of high school graduates that would come and serve. 
First we had the draft, then we had the volunteer service, which we have now, which has increasingly got more expensive. So there's a cost with human capital. And also we want to be able to retain people. But with civilians hiring and the arduous um, uh, impact of military careers, moving all the time, deploying all the time, some people want to leave and uh, you know, homestead, put their families one place. Increasingly a lot of spouses work, children don't want to work. So we have all these things working against each other. Yes, we have new authorities, but it costs more money. And we're getting to the point now with um, our discretionary spending being uh, somewhat capped that uh, the Defense Department doesn't have much more. We've got to figure out how to do business better, how to acquire things better, how to um, uh, do smarter things, change the way we work. So you have all those issues going on too. And these are issues in the NDAA. And of course, we have overseas operations, the Overseas Contingency Operations Fund. Some people want to increase that. And then uh, also politicians want to have an offset to make sure we have domestic spending too. So all those things go into the Authorization Act. And then they, of course, hand it over to the appropriators. So you've talked about things getting more expensive, and Congress obviously is the one that's in charge of appropriating these things. So 2020, there seems to be a debate, 733 billion, 750 billion, and then there's some people who are saying 700 billion. That one's a little more on the uh, the dark horse candidate side. What are, you, what are you forecasting? What do you see for contractors in the acquisition stage and, and just the budget at large? Well, the students, we kind of back up a little bit and we talk about our national security strategy, mm-hmm. our national defense strategy, our national military strategy, and then who are the threats? What do we really have to budget against? And I'll say this, sometimes we prefer doing yesterday than what we do or face tomorrow. Secretary Gates, when he was SecDev, said we have a 100% record of being correct about not predicting the future. We tend to do the best last. And then remember Admiral Mullen said when he was chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, perhaps the biggest threat we face is our budget deficit because we have interest on the debt. Uh, if you look at the charts right now from CBO, uh, we've got um, interest payments that will exceed the defense budget in about 2023. So I believe there's going to be some belt tightening. We've got to do business better. Uh, I think the services need to be able to close down some facilities, which brings up that ugly word no one wants to talk about, BRAC, base realignment and closure. That usually happens in a president's second term. Maybe we'll face something like that. We'll see no community wants that. And there's certainly no congressman. They always say NIMBY. You heard that word before? Not in my backyard. It's in your backyard. It's okay. (laughs) So all those dynamics are going on, plus the biggest thing in town. I have one slide where a big box in the middle, it says election 2020. That's what's going on right now. So will we have a continuing resolution in October? I believe so. Could it be a half year or full year? Probably so. Really? So you're thinking half year to full year? I do. And and what about that? Just the, the, the partisan divide? Things can't kind of get going at this point? It's why make a decision now when things might change in a year. So just put things off. The easiest thing to do is stall, and we've certainly seen Congress do that, choose to make a decision later. All right, well, we're going to take a quick break, and when we get back, we're going to talk a little bit more about politics. We're going to talk some more about national security and uh, get more of your opinions. So we're talking with uh, John Cotton, Vice Admiral of the U.S. Navy Retired. He's the Executive MBA Adjunct Faculty for the School of Business at George Mason University. I'm your moderator, Scott Massioni, on the discussion National Security, Defense, and Educating Our Future Industry Leaders, sponsored by George Mason University on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network. 
The executive MBA in national security from George Mason University transforms current and aspiring leaders from the military, government, and corporate sectors into business leaders who understand the unique demands of the national security sector. Get the skills of an MBA plus deep insights into both national security and government contracting. Learn from MBA faculty and national security experts through discussions, projects, simulations, case analysis, executive coaching, and a DC residency. More at business.gmu.edu slash EMBA. Welcome back to the discussion, National Security, Defense, and Educating Our Future Industry Leaders, sponsored by George Mason University on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network. My guest today is retired Vice Admiral John Cotton from the U.S. Navy. He's the Executive MBA Adjunct Faculty at the School of Business for George Mason University, and I'm your moderator, Scott Massioni. Uh, so, Admiral, we were talking about manpower a little bit earlier, and one of the things that we neglected to mention was the, the security clearance process, which at this point is a little slow. <laughs> it's, there's a big backlog. So uh, can you show, tell us a little bit about what the sort of landscape of that is right now, and, and where is it going? Sure. First of all, you're absolutely right. Uh, clearance is a showstopper for some folks. Um, the longest I've heard is about two years for some people. Yeah. The fastest, you know, with uh, White House intervention might be a couple months. But in most cases, it's nine months to a year to get a, you know, a clearance. This is why I tell people who are uh, in the military, in the government, who have a clearance, that might be your most valuable asset is just having that clearance to be able to transition between uh, jobs with that clearance. Even if you go active uh, or inactive for a while, just having that clearance will make it faster for you to get into the process. So when we're talking about replacing the workforce, there are literally perhaps hundreds, perhaps thousands of people just in this area who are awaiting their clearance to work on some government program. So it is an issue. Now, DOD is going to be taking over the security clearance process here pretty soon. They sure are. And they've done this in the past. They went to OPM. Now they're going back to DOD again. Do you think that that might help speed things up a bit? I really do. You know, um, it's the ultimate customer. Mm -hmm. They want to have it happen. They can set the standards. We do it internally. There's no reason they can't do this properly. Uh, I think just policing and setting the standards is important. With that said, I got to tell you that the military recruiters, so we're looking for our nation's youth, I'll say 17 to 24 years old, to join our military. You know, the numbers today are pretty startling with about three quarters of our youth, or about three out of four, not qualified to join the military right. due to um, uh, physical reasons, due to uh, not performing in high school due to drug use, due to crime, due to uh, some other psychological issues, uh, especially legal drug use, um, Ritalin or something like that. There's a lot of issues that go on. So just the whole base of people we can draw from, both in the contractors and in the military, is diminished. And on top of that, 3.5% unemployment, it's real competition for who our next workers and leaders are going to be. So a lot of the people you work with are that specialized small group and, and as your students. What has been their experience with the security clearance process, and, and how have you been sort of teaching and bringing that sort of expertise If in? there's one word, you would say frustration. Sure, sure. Because let's say you're a smaller company, you win a contract, you, you want to scale up as fast as you can. If it takes a year to scale up, oh my gosh, you're not meeting what you promised to the customer. So that is where the frustration comes in. And, and when they come in, you know, so they, they have their security clearance in, in most cases, they, they're coming to get a degree from, from you, you're helping them with that. Uh, what's some of, the, some of the differences within the degrees that you work with, and, and can you just explain a little bit how GMU works? That's a great question. Well, you know, we were talking on break. Uh, GMU is the largest university uh, in Virginia with 37,000 students from over 150 countries. And so there are un- many undergraduate programs. The School of Business has a couple MBA programs. The one I'm in is the National Security Residency for the Executive MBA. 
So you have a full-time MBA, you've got a part-time MBA, which is going to school at night, and then the executive MBA program. The difference is about 10 years working experience. So in the executive MBA program, uh, the average age is about 38, maybe half for govies, I call them, half for civvies, some are in the military. And the real beauty of the course is having these folks sit down, maybe 15 to 20 people over the course of you know, 16 months, and particularly in the one-week one, one residency, and then just talking about the issues they have. And in most cases, it's the government people said, I had no idea we were putting you people through this. Just right. the bidding process, the request for information, the uh, push for profitability, the competing for contracts. You think you're going to win, and all of a sudden Congress has a continuing resolution, so there's no new contracts for a while. It's very frustrating for some of those smaller companies, not so much for the big companies with deeper pockets. Mm -hmm. So we talk about that big, medium, small size company, what it's like to work for each one, and then the issues they all have. Do you think it's the congressional cycle that is a bigger hindrance, or is it the acquisition system itself, which is something that Congress and DOD have been trying to change? Um, it's everything. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, I've also talked to people that said the best customer in the world is the Defense Department. They've got the biggest budget. They've got rules that are written down. They're predictable on a one-year process. You can rebid the following year. So that's easy compared to someone else who just picks what they like the best or something. Um, so it can get frustrating, too, because of Congress, the continuing resolution. But on top of all this, you have to execute. And we have so many rules and regulations in our acquisition process. We talk about this where, in some cases, the process is more important than the product. So the output gets delayed, and we look at the Joint Strike Fighter, for example, which was due many years ago, and here it is you know, being delayed, and then the um, repercussions of that across the other aircraft and what you have to do to make up for that. Also that uh, we have combatant commanders and the services that have the assets that they need. Now, some of those uh, reforms that we were talking about, you know, they, they pushed down uh, decision-making authority for milestones down to the service chiefs. Uh, they got rid of paperwork, empowered PMs. Are any of those really stand out to you as something that can actually help the system the most? I like that it's back to the services yeah. rather than being centralized, which tends to be a little more political. Mm -hmm. um, we talk about Congress and how jobs, votes, districts, re-election. Uh, we talk about how service chiefs really have three priorities. They have people, operations and maintenance, and acquisition, buying new things. And a lot of times there's only money enough for two, right, particularly right. when you're at war. And so Congress has to make that make up for that. And so we talk about that two-year process, about in the building making decisions, and then uh, telling Congress about that, and then to the president for the president's budget. And it's also interesting about this two-year budget development process. Technology, you know, Murphy's Law used to be about, or Moore's Law, excuse me, uh, about a year and a half of technology change. We have speakers that come in and talk about six months. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, technology changes. And so if you're delivering something to our special forces, for example, it has to be very rapid delivery. So fortunately, each of the services are looking at rapid technology delivery processes, which I think is very healthy. Well, we're going to take one more break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about something that has to do with rapid technology delivery, which is the Jedi contract, bringing sure. in cloud. So something that's always controversial. My guest today is retired Vice Admiral John Cotton from the U.S. Navy. He's the executive MBA adjunct faculty at the School of Business for George Mason University. I'm your moderator, Scott Mascioni, on the discussion national security, defense, and educating our future industry leaders. Sponsored by George Mason University on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network.
The Executive MBA in National Security from George Mason University transforms current and aspiring leaders from the military, government, and corporate sectors into business leaders who understand the unique demands of the national security sector. Get the skills of an MBA plus deep insights into both national security and government contracting. Learn from MBA faculty and national security experts through discussions, projects, simulations, case analysis, executive coaching, and a DC residency. More at business.gmu.edu slash EMBA. Welcome back to the discussion, National Security, Defense, and Educating Our Future Industry Leaders, sponsored by George Mason University on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network. My guest today is retired Vice Admiral John Cotton, part of the U.S. Navy. He's the Executive MBA Adjunct Faculty at the School of Business for George Mason University, and I'm your moderator, Scott Massioni. So one of the things that we teased before we came to this, uh, before this, this past break was the JEDI contract, and I think maybe if you could just tell us about the importance of this contract, what it means not only for the military, but for the future of technology in the military. Sure. And of course, when this first was mentioned to uh, folks in the Pentagon, I was like, oh my gosh, we're going to put our secrets in the cloud. <laughs> yeah. What could go wrong? Um, in the executive MBA course, we do a Harvard case study on the Amazon Web Services and just how important that was to Amazon. And of course, they had excess capacity and they started uh, leasing it out to others. In fact, Netflix uses Amazon Web Services and yet they compete for content as well. So it's interesting how that goes. Yeah. But the warrior of tomorrow is gonna be, he's gonna have to get information now. And it can't be back to the base, to a fixed database that has to be updated. It's gonna have to be cloud-based. And then you're gonna have to have the security to get to and from it. And uh, that's where your secrets will be and your information that you need. So we're gonna have to do this. Uh, the contract was decided, it was protested. In a month, we'll find out what's gonna happen. Perhaps it'll be Amazon Web Services. But this will be very, very important for defense to make this work right. Uh, I also like it because it's an all-service solution and not just one service at a time, because right now they're very siloed. I remember way back when, when um, Secretary Rumsfeld was first briefed on the Navy Marine Corps intranet. Yeah, yeah. And his first question was, why is it only the Navy Marine Corps? Why isn't it always defense? Change is slow sometimes. Here we are 15 years later. Or maybe finally going to get this right, and it'll be good for the warfighter. It'll be good for all the services to do that. What does it mean for the companies that get this contract, or the company, and yeah. how's that going to affect the whole landscape? Too? Yeah, exactly. So the train is leaving the station, yeah. and this is a big train, ten billion dollar contract for ten years. You need to be on this train. So of course, you want to be the prime that wins. But in many cases, when a prime wins, it's the competitors and their workforces that sometimes team or partner with that winner to make this work. And we talked about in the last segment about the number of people that can do this, that are just qualified, have a clearance, that can get on this. So I think that's what's going to happen here, that uh, there's going to be uh, one clear winner, but a lot of these people are going to be working on this contract for many years. Right, and it's going to be, this is the first one, they're saying it's going to be multi-vendor eventually over the time, right? And but if this is done successfully with DOD, just imagine the other branches of government going the same way. So I think there's going to be plenty of business for a few companies that can do this. Let's, let's kind of stay on that topic with, with business at this point. So Raytheon is now doing a merger with another big company. It's going to be the second or third biggest uh, defense company, I believe. Yes. So uh, uh, what does that also mean for, you know, we've had these big six or big ten, however you want to chop it off, uh, of defense companies. They keep getting smaller. How does that affect the defense department and also the contractors that you, that you work with? Well, just like in government, where the biggest expense you have is manpower, the same thing is in the civilian industries. And as we have fewer contracts and they're spread out a little further, 
these companies bid for these contracts may or may not win. And as the profitability is squeezed by Pentagon negotiators, there's less profitability. So some companies have to look at what we need to do in the future. As I was telling you, I read an Aviation Week article last night about how the two CEOs called each other and said, hey, if we combine, we'd have less corporate infrastructure, we'd have less costs. Together, we can compete better than we can separately. So sometimes it was the cost structure of the companies, particularly the corporate structure, that uh, drives some of these mergers. How does that work into things like OTAs, other transaction authorities, prototyping, fail fast? That's the whole new defense culture. Does that cost more money for private companies when they're trying to put these well, prototypes out? A private company, this is just general numbers that I, I can tease you. This is what I can tell pilots, for example, so they right. can understand things. To be profitable, a company needs to make about 6% profit. If they're making 15% profit, they're doing very well. And if that's your segment, you'll probably be CEO someday. <laughs> so the Pentagon tries to drive about single-digit profitability, but that also leans out the amount of money that a company can spend on research and development, or the IRAD funds. And increasingly, the Pentagon would like to direct what a company uses its IRAD funds for, so maybe it aligns with some of the technologies the Pentagon thinks it needs. But sometimes company does its own research and comes up with some great big idea, takes it to the Pentagon, they go, whoa, where did that come from? Right. So there's a give and take on you know, how much a company is all allocated to use as part of their profitability for these IRAD things. Now, rapid prototyping, we talked about in the last segment, that's the OTA, that's really important, is to be able to go direct, get something done, get it to the warfighter. And probably the people that do that best are down at Special Operations Command, SOCOM. Mm -hmm because they've got warfighters that need something now, and they've got a shortened process, can buy those things. And that's really the envy of all the services, uh, being able to do that. What makes these non-traditional companies more exciting to the Defense Department compared to the traditional ones like Lockheed Martin and uh, Raytheon? Well, I think you know some of those big programs, a big aircraft program like Joint Strike Fighter, a ship like an aircraft carrier where it really takes years to make happen. This rapid prototyping is a product now. There is a requirement in the field you know, a two-star or three-star says they need it. How quickly can you get it with existing gear? It's kind of, you know, commercial off the shelf. Um, so you're satisfying the customer immediately, a lot more reward, you know, psychic income, you know, getting that done fast. So do, is it, do you think that it's taking those uh, products that, that those non-traditional companies have and making them into a warfighting capability? Or is it the other way around that you, you ask them to make a warfighting capability? It's both. Yeah. And there's very few things that are dual use, um, especially hardware-wise. But increasingly, um, cyber is so important, the whole cyber domain, and getting that kind of technology and those programs, those are some things we're rapid acquiring also. And it's from those small companies with the good technology. And so that's where Google comes in. That's where uh, Uber comes in, right? They, that technology they have for GPS or to uh, talk to cars or those kind of things, they can use that exact same stuff for a tank. Right? And also, I've got to plug this too. As the former chief of Navy Reserve, I said we really had no reserve at all. We had people who reserved our country. Mm -hmm. So we've got requirements now, particularly in the cyber domain, and there's a lot of people out there who would love to become a reservist, someone who reserves our country, that has that technology, already has that clearance, knows how to make that work. Age shouldn't make a difference. It shouldn't be 40 or younger. We have 40, 50, 60 year olds that can serve. We've hired doctors at age 60, we've hired doctors in their 70s. We're gonna be doing this, I think, for cybernauts yeah, in the future. Yeah. So a whole new uh, look at human resources and how we get people to man our forces. Admiral John Cotton, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. 
I'd like to thank again our guest, retired Vice Admiral John Cotton of the U.S. Navy. He's the Executive MBA Adjunct Faculty at the School of Business for George Mason University. I'm your moderator, Scott Massioni, and you're listening to Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. For more on this discussion, visit federalnewsnetwork.com and search George Mason. Thank you for listening to the discussion, National Security, Defense, and Educating Our Future Industry Leaders, sponsored by George Mason University on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network.